2,000 years ago, early in the first century, somewhere between 0 AD and 15 AD, a Jewish baby was born. And this baby would grow up to be a well-known teacher. He had followers. He was respected. He had influence. And one scholar says that he was remembered as one of the greatest rabbis of all time, a man of exemplary devotion and piety, who knew the law of God forwards, backwards, inside and upside down, and taught it to all who would sit at his feet. And yet, you most likely have never heard of him. And you don't know when he was born or what he did, because this baby's name was Gamaliel. And this man is actually mentioned in the Bible a couple of times. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says that he was taught by this man named Gamaliel. And at this point, you might be asking, or you might be thinking, did I come on the wrong holiday? Did I come to the wrong place? Uh, You might be, but you seriously might be asking, why are we talking about the birthday of this Jewish man named Gamaliel? in the first century. And I want to suggest that we should actually be asking a similar question every December. We should be asking, why are we talking about the birthday of a Jewish baby named Jesus from this first century? You know, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? You know, every year, millions of people celebrate this holiday. We transform our towns. We transform our homes. Uh, we, the whole thing is named after him. Christ, Christmas, Christmas. And we go and buy, you know, presents in his name. We greet each other with his title, Merry Christmas. And we listen to songs about him. And we just change the whole look of everything around us to immerse ourselves in this story of something that happened 2,000 years ago. And and so isn't it a, a bit strange that we do all of this to celebrate the birthday of a Jewish baby born 2,000 years ago? What's the deal? Why are we still talking about this person born, and why are we celebrating his birthday? And, and why aren't we celebrating Gamaliel's birthday? Another Jewish man who had influence and who had followers and who lived in the first century and was born 2,000 years ago. And you perhaps know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. And this was a title taken from the Old Testament um, where God would uh, anoint someone. The word Christ means anointed one, and God would pour oil on them uh, to signify that I've chosen this person and my presence is with this person. And the hope of the Old Testament was that one day God would send a king, he would anoint someone uh, to bring his kingdom to earth, to bring his rule and reign to earth. But interestingly, there are other people who claim to be the Christ. There's other people who claim to be the Messiah. In fact, other people even thought that they were the Messiah and followed them into battle. But we aren't celebrating their birthdays either. So why are we celebrating the birth of a man named Jesus, whom people thought and think is the Messiah, the Christ? And why do millions of people celebrate the birthday of a Jewish baby born 2,000 years ago to blue-collar, somewhat poor parents who lived kind of in the back country of the nation of Israel, the region of Galilee, in one of the kind of towns that people consider kind of a hillbilly town, like Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? It's kind of a hillbilly town in the back country. So why are we celebrating this kid's birthday? Why him? And the reason we celebrate Jesus' birthday is because the reason he came is so significant. What he came into the world to do is important and meaningful to every human being 
who has ever lived and every human being who will ever live. Jesus' birthday is a big deal because Jesus is a big deal to everyone. And to see this, I want us to look at uh, one part of one letter written by a man whose life was changed by Jesus. His name is Paul, sometimes called the Apostle Paul. And in this letter, 1 Timothy, he tells his story to uh, a younger man that he's mentoring to be, uh, be a teacher in the church. And so he tells part of his story here. You can find it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, page 991, if you're using the Black Bibles back there. In verses 12 through 13, Paul tells us what he was like before Jesus radically changed his life. Yes, he says, I was an apostle, I am an apostle, and I am an ambassador for Christ now, but let me tell you what I was like before, what my life was like before. And so, uh, verse 12 and 13, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. So he says, I was a blasphemer, which means someone who speaks irreverently and disrespectfully about God. And in the Bible, you blaspheme God. You can't blaspheme me. I can't blaspheme you. You blaspheme God. And so it's significant to see how important he sees Jesus is by saying he was speaking things against Jesus and he calls it blaspheming him. So he considers Jesus on an equal plane with God. Paul was a persecutor, he says. Before becoming a Christian, he was a Pharisee, which was a trained religious teacher uh, among the people of God, the nation of Israel. And the book of Acts tells us that he was hunting down Christians, dragging them out of their houses, putting chains on them, and bringing them up to Jerusalem to be prosecuted. He was a persecutor. He also says he was an insolent opponent. I had to look up that word. Maybe you know what insolent means, but I didn't. It means showing a rude and arrogant lack of respect. His opposition to Jesus wasn't kind of like a friendly disagreement where he's like, yeah, I'll debate with these Christians. He was actually hunting them down. He wanted to stamp it out. He was disrespectful. He wanted to kill this whole thing, people who called themselves followers of Jesus. So he was not respectful. He was rude and arrogant. And so what happened to him? The second half of verse 13 says, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul wasn't a nobody. He was definitely a somebody, but he was known as a somebody for all the wrong reasons because he was violently opposed to Jesus and everyone who uh, aligned themselves with Jesus. He wasn't quietly minding his own business when Jesus came into his life. He was going the exact opposite way he should go, and then Jesus comes in and he changes the direction of his life. He was an enemy of Jesus and actively opposed to all who followed him. He wasn't neutral. And then it says, he says, Jesus poured out his grace on me, this person who was Jesus' enemy, who was hating his people, who was hating Jesus, who thought he was a phony and a fraud. And he says, Jesus poured out his grace on me. And, de- and Jesus did not just forgive Paul, but Jesus appointed Paul for service. And this is a story of a devout enemy turned evangelist. This is Paul's story of how he came to know Jesus, how he, how Jesus came to him and then changed the entire course of his life. And then verse 15 sums up what he has experienced. But he states it as a principle that applies to everyone. So verse 15 he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
So this is what Paul experienced. He was a sinner. The foremost of sinners. The worst of sinners. And Jesus saved him. Jesus came into his life, knocked him on his butt, literally, and completely changed the direction that he was going. The way Paul says it is this. He says, Jesus saved him. Jesus saved me. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul's point is this. Jesus came into the world to save people like me. And that's what each of us can say. We can say, Jesus came into the world to save people like me. And that means Paul's story is your story, or it can be your story. And there's an interesting progression in Paul's life. He, he wrote a letter um, to another church in the region of Galatia in about 49 AD, which was like 15 years after he became a Christian. And in that letter, as he does in many letters, he calls himself an apostle for Christ. I'm one of Jesus' sent ones. He's sent into the world to do stuff. And, but in that letter, he makes a case for his validity as an apostle on equal footing with the other apostles. And so he's saying, I'm an apostle equal with all the other apostles. Six years later, about 20 years after he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, he wrote to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 15:9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. And then, about five years later, around 60 AD, about 25 years after he became a Christian, he wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he calls himself the very least of the saints. And the saints is, just means holy ones. It's a way to refer to God's people. And then in this letter, 1 Timothy, two years before his death, and after following Christ for about 30 years, he calls himself the worst of sinners. And so watch his progression. He calls himself an apostle, equal to the other apostles. Then he calls himself the least of the apostles. Then he calls himself the very least of all God's people. And then he calls himself the very worst of sinners. Over 30 years of being a Christian, Paul was on a journey of deepening humility. Over time, he became more and more aware of just how much he needed Jesus. Jesus came to the world to save sinners, and he's becoming more and more aware of how true that is, that he is a sinner in need of what Jesus has to offer him. Over time, he grew in his awareness of how undeserving, unworthy he was of what Jesus had done in his life, to be loved by Jesus and to be used by Jesus. And this is the growth of every Christian, is that over time we don't feel like, you know, I'm getting a lot better and I kind of need Jesus less. But over time we're supposed to be growing more and more aware of, I'm way messed up than I ever thought it was 20 years ago or 5 years ago or last year or whatever it is. And the principle is this, as he states it, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul includes his story in it, of whom I am the foremost. And then in verse 16 he tells us, but I receive mercy for this reason. So he just said, I am the worst of sinners. Then he says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul sees himself as an example of what Jesus can and will do for anyone who surrenders their life to him as their king. Paul sees himself as kind of a promo, you know, a movie trailer, a promo, an advertisement uh, for the mercy, patience, and grace of Jesus. And, and you may think tonight, you may think you're beyond reach. You may think you're just too far gone. You may think you've screwed up your life so bad that there's no hope for you. Whether you're a Christian or not, you might be thinking that. Christians can think that too. You may feel like you've let God down too many times for him to ever take a second chance on you. And maybe you're in despair of your own sin. Or maybe you've decided, you know, this time, 
I'm really going to get it together. I'm going to clean up my act for God. God, I promise I'm not going to do that again. God, I promise I won't stray again. And so is that you today, feeling either like you've let God down, or you're promising God, I won't let you down again. I just can't let you down again. And whether we are believers in Jesus or not, we can feel like a hopeless case. And if the Apostle Paul were here today, I think he'd say to you, look, I was the ultimate fixer-upper. I was in such bad shape. Most people would consider me a hopeless case. Don't waste your time on me, people would say. But Jesus didn't do that. He would say, even though I'm the worst of all sinners, he came to me and changed me. If Jesus can do that for me, he can certainly do that for you. And Paul was like a car that you would look at and be like, you know, you total a car. And it's like, it would cost too much to repair this than to just junk it and get a new one. And Paul, that's what Paul was. He's like, look, I was the worst. I was in the worst shape. No one would want to repair me. If you're looking at a house, so is this a fixer-upper? He's saying, no, people would just condemn me. If I was a house, they just condemn me and say, tear it down. This thing isn't safe for anyone to be in. He felt hopeless. He says he was hopeless. Paul is an example telling us that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' mercy. And it's almost like he knows that people will say, but you don't know what I've done. I'm way too bad. You don't know how much I've screwed up my life. You don't know how my, you don't know my past. You don't know me. You, you don't know that he would save me or he could love me. I'm just too big of a mess. And to that, Paul looks us in the eyes and says, let me tell you my story. I would have thought the same thing as you. Jesus saved me so that no one else can say, I'm too far gone. There's no amount of sin, evil, or wrongdoing that's too much for Jesus to handle. He's like, just look at my life, he says. And the truth is that anyone who claims the name of Christ by calling themselves a Christian is a promo for the mercy, grace, and patience of Jesus. And so why are we talking about this Jewish baby, this Jewish baby named Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph among the animals 2,000 years ago? It's because this Jewish baby came into the world to save sinners. This Jewish baby came into the world for people like you and for people like me. This Jewish baby changed everything for us. And this Jewish baby was none other than the eternal Son of God stepping into time and space, into human history, taking on flesh, becoming one of us, entering our world. And, And why did the Son of God come into the world? Not to have a good life, not to be influential, not to become a great teacher, not to be a good example for us to follow, not to give us teachings and principles for how to live. No, the Son of God came into the world to save sinners, Paul says. Like you, like Paul, and like me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We needed rescuing, and he came in to rescue us. We might ask, okay, what was Jesus all about? What is he kind of in the business of? Jesus is not in the business of hanging out with people who think they have it all together and who try to convince other people that they have it all together. Jesus is not in the business of spending his time with spiritual elites or people who are uh, proud of how good they are, who put on a show for God and other people. Jesus calls those people to lay down their pride, to admit their brokenness, their messiness, and how messy they really are so that they can actually receive the grace that they desperately need. Jesus is in the business of putting broken people back together. Not only putting us back together, but then also holding us together, being with us, present with us. 
Jesus in the business of drawing near to people who have made a total mess of their lives, who are broken, who failed, who have messed up, who think they're beyond rescue, and think they're beyond repair. Jesus is in the business of coming into our lives and bringing us the healing that only he can bring. And that's the family business of God the Father and God the Son and Jesus. That's what he's in the business of. And then the church is also called to join that family business. Now, as children adopted by uh, God into his family, we join the family business. And that's the reason that we can certainly say that the church should be the last place that you have to put on a spiritual performance to act like you have all the answers. It should be the last place that you have to uh, pretend you're better than you are, the last place that you feel like you have to hide the real you. And the reason we make such a big deal about Jesus' birthday is because of the reason that he came into the world, of why he was born, and because of what he means for people who have fallen short. And the birth of Jesus can never be over-celebrated. And Katie, uh, McHenry County kind of had this contest for um, like lights. People could submit their house into this light contest. And we went to one of them, and it, we sat in front of this house for 20 minutes because it was a, a choreographed light show uh, to songs. There was like a digital Santa face that would talk in this really low voice. Hey, I'm Santa. And he would like, you turn to a certain radio station, and then I could do it better if my voice would go. But you turn to this radio station, and then it's Santa, like DJ Santa talking to you, and it'd be like a 20, 16 minute show of this whole house with choreographed lights, and then Santa would tell you, like, the show will start back in three minutes, and then you move on. We sat there and watched the whole thing. Hudson loved it, so that was nice. Uh, and perhaps you look around at our world and think, have we gone a little too far? I mean, we got choreographed lights on our houses, and it's all become so commercialized. People are decorating their houses. They don't even know what they're decorating for. We've gotten so far away from where Christmas actually came from, you know, the reason for the season type thing. And perhaps you think, you know, Jesus was born to humble parents in a humble stable. They didn't have much money. There was no glitz and glamour. So why are we putting all this effort in to put on such a spectacle for Jesus' birth when his birth wasn't actually that great of a spectacle? Unless you count the angels singing to the shepherds. That was pretty crazy. And I was made aware of an interesting essay written on this very topic. And this essay is entitled, Joyous Surrender, A Rhapsody in Red and Green, by a man named Joseph, I think it's Buttum. And he writes this. Give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing out on the lawn. Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. Give me snow piled to the rafters. The dozen creches, which are nativities, I didn't know that. The dozen nativities my wife scatters wildly around her home like breadcrumbs leading back to the woods. Give me houses so lit up that the neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcakes so dense they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizons. Gingerbread cottages and mouse king nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards and eggnog so nut- nutmeg that the school children carolers cough and sputter as they try manfully to gulp it down. Tastefulness is just small-mindedness pretending to be art. And Christmas isn't tasteful, isn't simple, isn't clean, isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God is intruded in this world. Give me churches thick with incense and green with pine tree boughs, the approach to the altar that feels like running an obstacle course through poinsettias and a roar from the bell tower, towers so ground-shaking that, that not even the deaf can sleep in. 
And he ends with this question. What other response could we have to the joyous news of the nativity that God has broken in, smashing the ordinary world by descending in the flesh? And as Americans, we are perpetual overdoers. We're never satisfied with where we are. It just needs to keep getting bigger and grander and brighter and, and louder. We just keep going, going, going. And the way we celebrate Jesus' birthday is one of those times where we will never overdo it because of what it means to us. It cannot be over-celebrated. The birth of Jesus into this world can't be overdone. How could we ever adequately celebrate the, the event where the eternal Son of God stepped into human history to save sinners like Paul, like us, like you, like me? There's a magic to the Christmas season. The world around us is transformed. And all of that reminds us of how God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to transform those who would surrender to him. And we can let all that we do for Christmas point us to God, as Paul does in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we get to come together as a church family and with friends and family and guests to celebrate your son's birth. Would you fill us with thankfulness and joy when we leave this place and go back to our homes to spend it with each other and other loved ones? Lord, would you fill us with the joy, peace, and love that you came to give us? In your son's name we pray. Amen.